Luke chapter 15, and we're going to just read verses 18 through 20. We're going to talk about repentance tonight and uh, just sort of get started on a topic that I'll probably go spend a little while on, to be honest with you, okay? As we start back with our regular schedule, first weekend uh, in September, so it'll be kind of the future for us. In Luke chapter 15, verse 18, um, Luke writes, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And of course, this is in the midst of the this is in the midst of the parable of the prodigal son. Um, the prodigal son actually says that Jesus quotes says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Let's pray. Father, I love and I adore you, Lord. I pray, God, that I can do what's right tonight, that I can preach clearly and concisely, Father God, that I can lead this people someplace that you want them to go, God, that it won't just be, God, uh, my passion about this, but it will be, Father God, something that is orderly and disciplined and given by you, Father. So I pray for that now, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I've, I have prepared enough and studied enough and prayed enough and meditated on this, and I pray now, God, that I'm ready to go come before your people and to share this. Father God, make it as long as you want it. Not one moment more, not one moment less, Father God. We love you. We ask you, please, God, to move in our midst. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, I ask, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple questions that we're asking. I'm trying to give an answer and sort of structure that answer. The first one, what's true repentance? I think if we're going to talk about something that I might title such, you know, in such a, a heavy-handed way, what is true repentance, or the essence of repentance, I need to start to come up with an answer that what is repentance? What is true, real, biblical repentance? Well, that's a big topic, alright? We may know the bones of it. We may know in a way or conceptually what God means. What I mean is, when you've done it, will you know it? I believe so. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of walk through these ideas. What I said was what's true repentance. And I said in the first part, true repentance comes from God, is about God, and leads ultimately to a godlier life. Um, I think I'm going to prove those and prove those fairly well tonight. Hang on with it. I will backtrack just a second and try to talk about those things. Repentance, repentance is God's work in our lives. We repented for the first time in salvation and we only repented for the first time in salvation because God enabled our repentance. The reason why you didn't repent all those times you heard was not because you were stubborn, because you possessed a heart that was unable to repent. God gives new hearts and new spirits. He promises in Ezekiel a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. Hearts of stone simply cannot repent. Hearts of flesh are malleable and easily breakable by God. And, and that is the essence of repentance. It begins in that given heart. So, let's look. J.C. Ryle, I read his... Bishop Ryle, 19th century Anglican, I read his... Uh, his morning and evening in the Gospels every day is part of my devotion. Love it. Bishop Ryle said this. He said, let us beware of false repentance. Action and change of life are the essence of true repentance and leads ultimately to a godlier life. 
action, change of life. When I repent, I don't just say I'm sorry, but God does a work in my life that enables me to do things that, that before I wasn't willing to do. I don't just mean in salvation. I mean that ongoing process of repentance. Let's kind of talk about that. What I said was, unfortunately, we must deal with the issue of repentance because sin remains a reality in the life of the believer. Anybody sinless in here? Well, no, we all say, well, nobody's a sinner. Reality is you're a sinner. Am I being mean? I am too. But we can always say, well, everybody's a sinner. But that's not exactly embracing the concept, is it? Everybody's a sinner really means, don't look at me too hard because everybody's a sinner. What we're really saying in a modern parlance is, don't judge me because everybody's a sinner. And what we're really saying is, I want to do what I want to do the way I want to do it, and I don't want anybody saying anything about it. That's really what we mean by all that nonsense, right? But the reality is I don't have to, you don't have to worry about my judgment. You don't have to worry about Mike's judgment or Chris's judgment or even Emily's judgment. What we have to worry about is God's judgment. We're about the fact that the perfect one looks down upon our lives and while we're going to sh I'm going to show you, He is deeply compassionate. He is also a God of, of perfection who's offended by our sin. Does it mean you have to be sinless to please Him? Well then, if it does, you're hopeless, right? But it does mean that He's given us this wonderful repentance that makes up, Kimberly, for the fact that we're unable to, to keep His commandments. He's given us repentance. So, at the same time, we have to begin to assess whether or not repentance is real or, and true or it's a hypocritical work of a corrupted or wayward heart. I mean, I'm going to look not, not at you. I want you to look at you. I want me to look at me. You look at your repentance. And I don't mean just your repentance and salvation. I mean the last time it started to dawn on you that you had messed up. Anybody messed up recently? I all the time. One of the disappointing things about the Christian faith for me was, I love it now, and I'm going to show you why you ought to love it, but initially I thought I was done with sin. I thought it wasn't going to be the issue. What I found out was, I only at, at salvation, I'd only scratched the surface of how bad I was, and that in, under Christ, I was going to find out daily just how messed up a guy I was. And so that first repentance was the verse of many, many others that were long and drawn out, and, and Chris heart-wrenching. I wasn't going to always be pleased with myself. Often I was going to not like myself very much. I learned that. And sometimes my repentance has been hypocritical or, or wayward or corrupt. Sometimes I said I'm sorry, but I wasn't really repentant. As I talked about before, um, when I was a little boy, I was always sorry when I was going to get a whipping. You know why? Because I was going to get a whipping. I didn't care about what I did. I was sorry I got in trouble. There's a difference between being sorry you got in trouble and really repenting. There's a huge difference. Christians repent. Everybody eventually sorry they got in trouble. Hell's going to be full of people who are sorry they got in trouble. They're sorry God was mad. They're sorry there was a rule against that that they ignored. All kinds of sorries. We can't uh, we cannot merely depend on the moment of salvation. And what I mean is, the instant when lost men and women under the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit will confess the mortal nature of their sin, trust Christ for the penalty, and believe the gospel for their final betterment. I don't mean just that one time that we know we got it right because we're saved. Okay? Everybody in this room who's saved has that one. 
aces. You got it right one time. I mean the next day or the next or the next week or the next month. Ongoing, what's the quality of our repentance? Is our repentance true and heartfelt or is our repentance begrudging? Which one works, which one doesn't? Which one um, washes away the effects of sin and draws us closer to God and which one just simply is, a, is that, that band-aid that band on that gunshot wound? We still have the problem of sin and we, we just simply couldn't spare enough time in our lives to atone with God for it. As those who pursue Christ Jesus, we're going to spend our lives in a cycle of sinning and repenting. Now, listen, that doesn't display some lack of supernatural change. If you're looking at me and I said, Brother Tony, all I do is sin and all I do is repent, I'm going to tell you, welcome to humanity. You're a person. That's, that's who you are. It is the, wonder, the wondrous miracle of God, Mike, that He points those things out to us. That's the change. The change isn't you're through with sinning, is that you're through with sinning blindly. Now you can't seem to get away with anything. When before you got away with everything, right? You did stuff and never thought about it. And now every little tiny misstep you freak out over. That's the nature of the Christian faith. And if you're doing that, don't feel persecuted by it. Don't feel, feel you know, constricted by that. God wants that because that's refinement. If you think you've got to have it your way and walk your way and do things your way, you don't need Jesus. We need Him not just for salvation, but we need Him for vocation. We need Him for everything. We need Him to show us the way. In repentance is part of His showing us the way. In exactly the same way that every once in a while you get on to your children, don't you? Because you've got to show them the way. Show them the way. I laugh about Joseph and Catherine who aren't here because they're already getting on to Olivia. Aren't they? Aren't they already getting on that little behind and it's got a diaper on it? And they're just getting on it all the time. You know why? They can't, they, they're not here to defend themselves, but they probably wouldn't put it this way. They don't want to go to prison. Right? We beat our children because we don't want them to go to prison. We're scared of them growing up and acting that way when they're 30. When they're four and they're laying the floor in Walmart kicking their feet. That's one thing. When they're 30 and laying in the Walmart kicking their feet. <laughs> can't put up all that, right? We're terrified they're going to stay like that forever. It's going to stick. God does the same thing with us. He sees us as we grow and He wants to whittle away at that immaturity. And He does it by conviction. He does it by pointing out our faults and we see them we can't live with them. And we grow more toward Him. Just like my mom, I told you that story about my mom all that time. When she take that, took that oak tree that's in her yard and it's great big right now, and we thought he wasn't going to make it, and we came by one day and looked like a steak. She had cut that thing back and whittled the top of it, and it was just as sharp as it could be. She said, it's going to grow now. You can't get your arms around the thing now. She cut it back onto a nubbin, but she knew what she was doing because she had ancient knowledge, old knowledge. And now it's so big, it's, it's going to be there forever, it seems like. We have to be whittled back occasionally. And God does that. Now, 
Um, this draws us close to God and increasingly closer to His morality and His image. All that does. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The patience of God is manifested to the lost and dying world in the form of His resolute desire to see all humanity come to repentance. God could be impatient, but yet God's response to our sin is patience. That's what so beautiful about what God does. He could have thrown us into hell at the first sin. He's justified in doing that. His perfection can demand that. Instead, God's response to my decades of messing up before salvation was patience. Now, I'm, I'm just telling you, that can sound kind of cruel to you sometimes. Because God could throw me in, into hell for one sin. And I'm like this, wait a second, how many people we kicked out of our lives for one sin? Don't lie to me. All sorts of, I'm done. Let us go to a restaurant, get one bad meal, I'm never going there again. And most time we lie. Most time we go back. But it takes a while. How many people are we done with in our lives because they crossed us one time? We didn't even want an explanation. Wouldn't even listen to an explanation. The fact that God is so patient for decades with my sin makes Him unlike any human I'd ever meet. Because I, humans aren't patient like that. One, two, three strikes, you're out, right? God gave me a thousand. And He never did anything other than just be patient. The combined action, the desiring God for repentance, and the power of the gospel and Holy Spirit in enabling that repentance to take place is the mercy of the Lord which holds back justice. And I mean that. That's a weird way to say it. And I don't want to cross any lines. I'm, I'm, I'm on a theological tightrope. All that holds back justice. And I said not undenied justice. We know that justice, our, our saying is justice delayed is justice denied. I understand the pseudo-truth of that and maybe the way it's, it's built into us. But the reality is this. It's not undenied, but it's restrained by mercy. Because justice isn't justice unless it's restrained by mercy, right? You know, justice without mercy is cruelty. God's justice... He, as much as He desires justice to defend His name and His law, at the same time, God desires to see us born again and repent of our sins. Not undenied, but restrained by mercy, because God is glorified by both His willingness to save sinners and also His perfection in morality and in divine justice. Both of those things bring glory to God. Not one more than the other. Both do. Now for the church, the good news continues to be encouraging and nurturing for us in the infancy of our spiritual lives. Which means that God doesn't turn mercy off once you're born again. You tap into deeper and better and more glorious mercy. God, isn't, God doesn't look at, well now you're saved, you ought to know better. He knows we don't know better. He knows you're still broken. He knows you're still messed up. He knows you still have pain from childhood. He knows that there's so, everybody in this room has got something that can time machine you back to 11 or 12 or 13 in the second. That can make you a, a, a hurt, broken kid all over again. Everybody's got, and God knows us so well. He knows that and He doesn't, He's not impatient with our imperfection. That's the beauty of it. 
Look what the Lord teaches in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, and we know this so well, if my people who call by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. God's knowledge of our sin, His response, humble yourselves, pray, seek my face. Not run from hellfire, not flee from the judgment to come. He says those things in other places. But God's, God's absolute ministry in the life of a whole nation of people was just humble yourselves. Just pray. Seek the face of God. It's what He wants now from the church. God demands is always open to, to the change of heart and mind of His people. You hear what I'm saying? Right now, if you're desperately wrong about something, God is not digging His heels in. God wants your change of mind. He's ready for you to change your mind. I don't just mean about, about the loss that might possibly be with us. What I mean is this, is that for God's church right now, so many people in this room are God's church. For God's church, don't think you can't be terribly wrong about stuff. Right now, horribly wrong. And God is not up there just shaking His head. God wants, He's giving you opportunity for compassion and mercy and for change of heart. Because God always wants that. We're not saved by the power of the blood of Jesus to languish in a moral hell and a sinner's wasteland. He didn't save you so you could stumble through life hating yourself. Because there's some people in this room right here who under even the blood have really hated themselves. And God didn't save you for that. He didn't save you for a different, maybe less intense kind of suffering. He saved you to live through you. Redeemed by the power of the blood, we're set loose from the absolute bondage to the flesh and its earthly desires. Because before, here's the thing, before you were, before God embraced you through repentance, understand, you were bound to sin. You were bound to the flesh. You, the things you did, the things I did, folks, we couldn't help it, could we? Did I know it was morally wrong? You better believe it. I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't help myself. Now we're set free. The blood sets us free from that. For the journey to true freedom and fulfillment in Christ is long and arduous. Here's the reality. The Chris is the reality. We've come to know Christ. We've been set free from the bondage of sin, but it doesn't mean we're living perfect, does it? It means that our road to Christ, our road to looking like Christ and living like Christ isn't straight and it's not downhill. It's uphill and it's winding. And we're going to stumble a lot. And we're going to fall down. And we're going to need His grace more and more and more every day. The end product of saving faith, a morally careful lifestyle, and a life and journey focused on the will of Christ is that we will reap the rewards of separateness for the name and glory of God. In the end, what God is also doing, so much so, is hurting us. Hurting us into separate lives. Hurting us into a way that doesn't look like everybody else. It's got to be the ongoing problem. The ongoing problem with the church and the incompleteness of a repentance-dominated lifestyle is that you and I, you and I, right here, are not looking enough like Him and still remain looking so much like those around us. Part of the work of repentance is to make us look like Jesus. Every day, a little more. 
This is what uh, David writes in Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all, is, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now David begins, what does he do? He blesses the name of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I, I always struggle with that, because I'm the one that needs blessing. I'm the one that can't live without Him. What is my blessing doing? My blessing is a blessing of thankfulness. God, you've involved yourself with me. You've sullied your name to include this sinner who's worthless and weak and broken all the time. I bless you, God, even though my blessing is worthless because I'm so thankful that you will have anything to do with me theme of this action is the goodness of God in blessing David's life. And the call is to never fail to remember the benefits of what I'm going to call relational salvation. He doesn't just save us. Um, uh, Luke, he doesn't just save us and, and, and abandon us. He saves us and joins with us. He saves us and allows us to be close to Him and, and interjects Himself into our lives. We're not alone. We're not saved and turned loose. We're saved and walked with and carried and dragged sometimes. So what are those benefits? The forgiveness of sins. You hear that? Whatever you've done under the blood of Jesus, God forgives. And whatever you will do under the blood of Jesus, God will forgive. There's nothing held out. There's nothing you could do so terrible that God says, well, no, I just won't take that. The blood's, the blood's always enough. It's always, when the blood's applied, it's always enough. The physical healing from disease and time of sickness. Now look, I know everybody in this room is going to get sick one of these days and die. But some of you have gotten sick and survived, didn't you? All. Right? Right? One of these days we're going to go and be with the Lord. And that's just the simple truth. We're going to get sick and we're going to go and be with Him. But the reality is this. You've been sick a lot of times in your life. And you, and you survived. God healed you. We believe healing comes from our God. Redemption from the consequence and punishment of sin. He has saved us from hell. And He saves us from those rampant consequences within this life. The bestowing on our unworthy lives of durable and uncircumstantial love. He doesn't just save you. He loves you. Don't ever forget that. The God who has saved you, died for you, and loves you. And it's uncircumstantial, unconditional love. As much as He loves you, you cannot under the blood sin enough that He will turn His back on you. And I'll tell you something else, because He is a universal God. Because He is an omnipresent, everywhere God. You can't even turn your back on Him, because wherever you're staring, He's right there. You can't get away from Him. There were times when you were young and your mama loved you more than anybody else, but the times you didn't want your mom to see what you were doing, right? Anybody been like that? You will never do anything that God can't see what you're doing. He can never turn away. He can never forsake you. It's within the realm of possibility that you could have sinned enough against your mama that she would have had a very hard heart towards you. Isn't it? 
I'm not saying she did. I'm saying it's possible. If you can't sin enough toward God, they'll have a hard heart toward you. You just can't. What you get is a durable and unconditional love. There's no greater gift than that. No greater gift. And the satisfaction of your lives uh, with good that comes only from the hand of God. So all these good things that only come from Him. Repentance unlocks for us all the pleasures of the Spirit-filled life and draws us ever closer to a, a, what I call a lockstep fellowship with the King of Glory. Now, real fast, the last point, and we'll try to do it as, as quickly as possible. From where does repentance come? So if the first one is, is uh, what is repentance? This one is, where does it come from? I said, repentance must well up inside of a person. Repentance is an uncontrollable thing. Forcing it doesn't help. Saying it, saying I repent because you know intellectually you're supposed to, is not the same thing as being brought to that point where you realize the only thing to do is repentance. In the very same way we've tried to say sorry before to people when we really knew we would offended them, but we had not embraced within us the depths of that offense and we did a bad job of apologizing didn't we but there's, there's been times in your life when you knew just how much you defended them and you just couldn't, it, the words flowed didn't they you didn't have to think about what you're going to say, they leapt out of your mouth these things must well up inside a person as a response to the truth first and foremost when I repent it's in response to something in God's word that has been brought to my attention it is the convicting power of God through the Holy Spirit. Not only, Aubrey, is it the Word, but it is the Word in conjunction with God's Holy Spirit making me feel like the dog I am. And then finally, a clear view of the circumstances of life. They don't always come that way. That's my words, not God's words. So please take them at that. But you really haven't repented until you realize your life is going to be, is absolutely being ruined by your actions. You really repent when the truth gets you, when the Holy Spirit gets you, and you look at your life and you say, God, I'm murdering my life. That's when you're on your face, right? That's when you're so broken you can't stop crying. That's real repentance. When you realize you're destroying what, what God gave and only man can ruin. And our focal passage, let's look very quickly at uh, the prodigal's repentance. He says this, um, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Look, the prodigal son has wasted his life and his inheritance. He had plumbed the depths of the bankruptcy of the fleshly world. I've used that term before. One of those things that real, true believers' repentance will teach you is just how bankrupt the world around you is. Just how much everybody's striving for stuff that not only you don't need, but deep, really deep down you shouldn't even want. He'd explored all that, right? He wasted it on, on horrible living. And he's left with nothing and he's starving. He found out, he saw just how bad the world was and how it chews people up and spits them out. And now he's reaping the whirlwind of poverty, self-indulgence, a chaotic mind, a ruined heart. Now terrible as the conclusion may be, it's not an isolated story. Many people have got to absolutely hit rock bottom. I mean, the, as we talk about, you talk about in drug and alcohol group, hit the bottom of that pit. Because only in the bottom of that pit can you look up, look up and see how glorious Jesus is. 
Only when you've fallen as far as a human being can fall does Jesus look 10,000 times brighter. Many people have to do that. And so this is not, shouldn't shock us very much. But look what he says. He says, I will arise and go to my Father and say to Him. What's He done right here? Who did He sinned against? Who did He sinned against? It's not a rhetorical question. Who had this prodigal son sinned against? The Father. He'd broken the Father's heart. Who's the only one that can deliver Him? The Father. What has happened in the interim? Pride, gone. Pride, gone. Any of you been so messed up, but you still had so much pride you wouldn't go back home and tell your mom and daddy what you've done? And not just in teenage years. Years after that. Could never go back. This guy right here come to the end of it. He realized, you know what? I broke my father's heart and I've got no choice. i got to go back to the father. Pride. I'm done with pride. Because pride will kill you, won't it? Pride will rob you of everything. Pride will keep you from the greatest blessings. Pride will make you throw away things that are the most valuable because you just simply can't say that, that you apologize. That's what pride will do. This guy right here, he understood it. Now look, understand this. This is a son of the master. He may might have wasted his inheritance, given it away, but understand this. This guy right here still had a place at the table. He could still go back and demand, couldn't he? He's just as much a son of that father as anybody. And the father, what we can tell, never cut him off. Never said don't come back. But what does he say in the second part of this? This is what he says. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He has rehearsed the conversation with his father. Not only is he willing now to swallow his pride and come back, he's willing to come back and, and scrub the floors if he has to. He has crucified his pride. He's realized pride is dragging him to hell and he's not going to let it happen anymore. He's cut that chain on his pride. But now here's the beautiful part. All of this is so true. This, guy, this young man swallows his pride and he goes back to the Father, the only hope he has. He's willing to do whatever it takes to be a servant in the house of his Father. We ought to be a master. What is the Father's response? And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our needing repentance, you know what the father's response is? Compassion. It's the father's response. Jesus is telling us. Your Father who sees you in your sin has compassion on you. Just turn. What does the Father do? Does He make the servant walk? My daddy would have made me walk. Every step. In the same way He made me go pick my own switch. Make it hurt more. Make it more humiliating. My daddy would have rubbed my nose in it for the next ten years. What does God do? He saw Him coming. He has compassion and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. That's what the Father does. The Father's response to your sin when you turn in repentance is not to make you stagger home or walk the long way. God promises to run and to embrace. That's what God wants. All He needs is our turning. And He does the running. And He does the embracing because He is filled with compassion.